Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. The reading this morning will be from Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10, New King James Version. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Please be seated. If you want an outline of today's sermon, you need to open the Bible to Daniel chapter 3. We're actually going to begin in chapter 1, a couple of verses there, and then we're going to be in chapter 3. And let me tell you how happy I am to see all of you here. We have a great crowd, a lot of people who are visiting. Thank you for coming. This, uh, as you know, is the day beginning our vacation Bible school. Standing on the floor to preach is always kind of novel for me. I look forward to that. I tell myself, you know, I should do this more, but I never do. Maybe I will. The, um, there's something I want to say to you about Vacation Bible School. This has been going on for many, many years in the West Huntsville Church. It's always been like it is now, at least as long as I've been around, that there has been many, there have been many man hours to get us to this point where we're ready to start the Bible school. And some of the decorations you see behind me, but we've got rooms through this building that are so wonderfully, beautifully, colorfully decorated in a way that is obviously for children. Now, you might look at this. You might look at, at all of these decorations and all of this stuff and say, that's, uh, that's pretty childish. I want you to see the, the reality here. And the fact is that it's designed for children. It truly is because in the West Huntsville Church, we love children. But I want you to understand that all of this is about foundational truth that we want to put in the hearts of these children. So what we're working to construct is a few days of, of fun for them in which we can teach them these truths. I want to glue them down. I want to cement these things in their hearts. And these lessons are just so important. They've got to get them. What we want is not merely young people that grow up in the West Huntsville Church, and while they're growing up as youth, why they attend faithfully and they practice Christianity, and then they grow up and go into those very difficult years when they leave home and they have to make their own way, and sometimes young people fall away, and you know that. We're not about that. How many young people can we lose to the world and it be okay? The answer is none. None. One is too many. So what we're wanna, wanting to do with Vacation Bible School is just a part of that. We want to be presenting foundational truths that are glued down in the hearts of these young people, these children, so that, so that they will be Christians all of their lives and raise future generations to be the same. So, 
our, our uh, presentation in the room that I'm Elisha, I'm pretty excited about that, is going to be about Naaman's leprosy, but that's not what I want to talk about this morning. In this, this lesson, I want to go to Daniel chapter, especially chapter 3, and talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, let me give you the background first, and then we will get into the lesson, and I want to draw some practical applications out of chapter 3. It's been about 130 years since the northern kingdom of Israel has gone into Assyrian captivity. Now, the southern kingdom has come into Babylonian captivity. I want you to realize that, that while this is very hard, and I'm going to pick up a passage from Psalm 137 in a minute, but while this is very, very hard, this is God's doing. The Babylonian captivity is yeah, its just hard to imagine. You see God's people, and how can it be that, that God has allowed them to be captured by the Babylonians, these Chaldeans, and, and pulled away from their homeland of Jerusalem? How can that be? Why would God allow that? The answer is, God didn't just allow it. God did it. Here is chapter 1 of Daniel and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. you got to understand that this Babylonian captivity of, of Judah is punishment from God. And God told them over and again, through the prophets, if you, if you keep doing this idolatrous thing, you know, I'm going to give you into the hands of your enemies. I'm not going to protect you. I will give you over. You must repent of your idolatry. Well, they would repent for periods of time, and then they would go back into it. You know about all of that. The fact is that this is the culmination of that. Now, God has not given up on them, even though they're in this captivity. Now, here is Psalm 139. Listen to this piece of poetry that is uh, beautiful and sad at the same time. Here's the attitude of these people. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. I'm sorry, here we go. 37, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive ask, us, ask of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, happiness, happiness, sing us. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. There's the heart. These people of Judah are, are so grieved about what's happened. Well, that was the purpose. That was the reason why God did it. But now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. It isn't that Nebuchadnezzar hates these Jews. He doesn't. This is merely a power grab. What he wants is to bring them over and, and have more control, more land mass, more people. He doesn't hate them. It's, it's very much like I think in chapter 1, like our immigration policy used to be, I think, which was that 
We especially would fast track people with talents and skills and education and bring them into our country and teach them our language. And the reason was that we wanted our country to be great. And we could be greater if we had the benefit of these people, these immigrants. Well, so in this case, you have something similar to that. And Nebuchadnezzar goes and, and brings these people over. And he's especially interested in the finest, the king's descendants. And that's chapter 1. And among those are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those are their, their Babylonish names. They renamed them. They want them to learn the language. And so they're going to spend time being trained, these finest, brightest. And so what does God do with them? I mean, so what is God's hand? So I'm still in chapter 1. Drop down to verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his reign. You get to chapter 2, and this is about... This is about the king. He has this dream. He, he knows he had a dream. He knows it's a, a communication from some god. He's polytheistic, and, and he just I can't remember the dream, but he knows it's important. So he calls his wise men, and he says, I want you to tell me my dream and then interpret it. Well, they said nobody can do that. You're asking too much. What are you talking about? I thought you were a soothsayer. I thought you, you, you told me you had power. Where's your power now? And he was so mad that he said, look, these are all imposters. They can't tell me my dream nor interpret the dream. They're imposters and they've just got to go. And so he set out to kill all of them. When Daniel heard about that, he said, sent word and said, let me come before the king. And, and so he does. And Daniel, as you remember, tells him his dream. Of course, the light bulb goes off and Nebuchadnezzar, you can see him. That, that's it. That's, that's it. That was the dream. And it describes this image, the, the head of gold and the chest of silver and, and etc. And Daniel explains that these are the kingdoms that will come to pass. But then there's going to arise a kingdom to which there shall never be an end. And he's talking about the church of our Lord. He's talking about the church of Christ that you read about in your New Testament. To that, to that kingdom there will be no end. Now, it's important that you get the, the bottom of chapter 2. Because I want you to understand Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's religion and his, and his mind. I, I, because this took me a while to get. Here's the end in verse 47 of chapter 2. After the dream has been revealed and he says, Daniel, you are wonderful. And the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Now, don't you look at that verse. And I want to know if you're like me, because I read that verse and I, I walked away from it saying, well, there you are. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a believer in the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, he, Jehovah. He is, he is about the one true and living God. Not really. I can remember when we were, took a mission trip in Trinidad and I, I, uh, I taught a man who was a Hindu which was, I, I hadn't done that before. And he was very welcoming, very friendly, just the two of us. And we sat down and I told him about Jesus Christ. And, and I've never seen anybody more accepting of that. And he listened and we talked and we exchanged and he was fascinated. And when we got to the end, he, uh, he was accepting of the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ. 
But then when I said something about obeying the gospel and becoming a Christian, well, that was out of the question. Well, no, no, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't understand. And the point was that despite the fact that he, he had agreed that Jesus is the only true and living son of God, that he believed in lots of gods. He, there were idols on every corner in Trinidad, and it was, it was polytheistic. Okay, so that, that's the explanation for why you have Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 saying, after Daniel interpreted the dream, he said, your God is it. He's the strongest God. He's the wonderful God. Well, but don't, don't misinterpret that. He's still polytheistic. So you get to chapter 3, and, and he creates this idol. It is, it is huge and magnificent, and it's gold. I think it must have been hard when the sun was out to look at it, because if you catch that sun just right, it will blind you. It was gold, and, and it was compulsory. Nebuchadnezzar says, when the music plays, I want everybody to bow down and worship this God. And so you know what happened. You know, he's, he's got, everybody does that. Why not? Why wouldn't you? You're going to die if you don't. He's going to have you killed, thrown in a fiery furnace. Well, the music begins to play, and, and so... Everybody bows down before this God, except, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there, boy, they really stick out. They're, they're not going to bow down to this God, and you know why. And the Chaldeans came and they reported this to Nebuchadnezzar, and he called them in and he said, Look, I don't know if there's some misunderstanding. I don't know, but I can tell you this. This is the clarity. When the music plays, if you don't bow down, I will have you executed immediately. Do you understand that? Well, yeah, they said, we understand it, but the thing is, we're not going to obey it. I think he must have been terribly shocked, but also enraged. He was furious. They said, no, we're not going to bow down before your God. We just won't do that. You know, we sometimes use this term, the hill to die on. Well, buddy, this is the hill. This was the one. They were not going to do that. And so he was so angry that it heated up the, the furnish seven times over. I don't know if it had ever been that hot before, but it was on this day. And they tied those young men up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they threw them in. Nebuchadnezzar wanted a front row seat. I didn't get so close as to get burned, but close enough that he could see down in that pit. And he was perplexed. He said now to his servants, now, wait a minute, wait, wait, didn't we, didn't we throw three, three men in there? I'm counting four. And the fourth one looks to me to be like the son of God. Bring them out. Now, see, you weren't supposed to be able to bring anybody out after they went in there. How long would it take? The answer is that there would be an excruciating pain, but it would be short-lived because you wouldn't survive for a few seconds, and then you would expire. And, and uh, there wouldn't, it wouldn't just, it'd just be a little bit, and there wouldn't be anything left but dust. That wasn't the case, and Nebuchadnezzar could see it. He says, bring them out to me, and, and they walk out. They come, the Bible says, on their own power, you know, they walk out of that thing. And, and he's amazed because they're still, they're not burned, their hair is not singed, I can't even smell fire, smoke on their, their clothing. And again, Nebuchadnezzar then repeats a similar thing, that this is the God, this is the most powerful God. He's the God of gods. 
Well, there you have it. Now, what I want to do is to get to chapter 3, and let's, let's pull out seven important lessons, practical lessons for us today. Number one. There we go. I'm going to do seven of them, so I'm not going to spend much time on each, but here's the first one. Serving God does not make life fair. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 8, the Bible says that, that as soon as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down, the Chaldeans came and they accused them to Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, you're going to have to know about this. We were out there in Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't bow down. What do you think about that? Oh, we know what you said about that. I think they were already jealous of the skill, of course, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with which God has blessed them. And, and they'd just assume they'd be eliminated anyhow. Well, this is a wonderful opportunity for that. And so they, they went and they, they told Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, after all, these, these are young men who, who are living godly lives. They're serving Jehovah God. And they just did a wonderful thing of courage to not bow down to this, this false God. And yet here, they're, uh, they're in great mortal danger. Incidentally, Satan is the accuser. That's what he is. He's called that. He is the great accuser. So you go to the book of Genesis, and, and you have Satan accusing God to man. Did God say that you shall surely die? Yeah. Well, you shall not surely die. He's accusing God of being a liar. God lies, and he's accusing him to man. He says this to Adam and Eve. But when you get to the book of Job, it's flipped around, and, and, and Satan is accusing uh, Man to God. When talking to God, Job says, now, if you took away, uh, Satan says to God, if you took away Job's health and his wealth that you blessed him with, he will curse you to your face. Now, there's his nature. Satan is, Satan is the great accuser. It wasn't fair. But just understand that, that serving God doesn't, suddenly make life fair. The reason is, of course, this, and this is true in reference to so many things. If we didn't suffer the, the normal human calamities, the problems, normal human problems of life, despite the fact that John 10 and verse 10 says that we have the abundant life, and I believe that's true, but we still will face difficulties, and some of them because we're Christians. Here's Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Just remember when you, when you struggle that you haven't resisted to blood striving against sin. Number two, sometimes the pressure to compromise in your life, compromise your faith, compromise your values in Christ, sometimes that, that pressure to compromise is going to be monumental. And so you get down to verse 13, I'm in chapter 3, the Nebuchadnezzar in a rage and fury. What do you suppose that looked like? I mean, he's, he's extremely powerful. He's got people all around him who are armed and dangerous, and he's, he can snap his finger and take your head off. I mean, how does this feel? He is infuriated. He's shouting. He's, he could look at his countenance, and he's, he's in a rage. And he gives a command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought them before the king. And our Lord said in John chapter 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And sometimes the the pressure to compromise is not going to be small. It's going to be great. 
I can think of compromises they might have argued. Can you? See, because we've got to be careful about this. We can, we can sort of negotiate our way into sin when the pressure gets hard, when the, the pressure to compromise is so monumental it's just suffocating. You ever, you ever been, been under pressure to tell a lie when it was just so very strong and you just... The pressure to compromise... I suppose they could have said, well, yeah, you know what? We, we, don't, uh, we don't appreciate this God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, but we are in Babylon. And when in Babylon, you ought to do like the Babylonians, right? We, we need to fit in. They, they, they could have uh, reasoned that way. Or, or maybe, maybe it could have been like this. Well, I tell you what, if we have any, any chance at all to bring these people over to understanding and, and accepting Jehovah as the only true and living God... We, we gotta do something. We can't, we can't offend them so quickly after we get here. We're gonna have to make some compromises or we will, I mean, it's for the better good or we'll never win them over. Can you think of ways that they might have comp- Can you think of ways in your life that Satan offers you massive compromise? Verse 14 says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? I think that's pretty interesting. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't misunderstand it. He gets it. These, these, are, not, these are not Israelite activists. They're not marching or protesting. They're, they're not protesting the food that they're given or that that the clothes they have to wear, or the fact that Nebuchadnezzar changed their names. They're not arguing or protesting because they don't like being in, uh, in Babylon instead of Jerusalem. It's not about any of those things. And it's interesting to me that Nebuchadnezzar knows that. This is about God. This is about religion and about doing, uh, living consistently with what is true and what their beliefs are. Are we, are we doing that? Are we doing that? The Bible says here, that Nebuchadnezzar says that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image. It's about worship, and it's about worshiping this idol. And I can tell you exactly about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What they're doing is letting Exodus 20 echo in their ears, their minds. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth. I don't want you to worship them. I don't want you to make them. You stay away from those things. And so now he's got a God and he says, you're going you're gonna to worship this God of mine or I'm going to take you and put you and I'm going to burn you up. What do they say? We're not, we're not, you know, whatever, but we're not going to do that. Now, now you listen to me. In our lives as Christians, we face these, these pressures to compromise that are sometimes monumental. I, I, need to, I need to know there are some hills to die on. There are. You say, this is going to cost me too much. Well, it may cost you an awful lot, but I tell you what, it's not as much as following through with the sin. Here's number three. Drop down to verse 16 with me. This one is so practical. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, the point is that I don't need to wait till I face a temptation to make a decision about a sin. That's the wrong way to go about it. And, and the first thing I want you to see is that the New King James has, I, I think, 
done a poor job at translating this. We have no need to answer you. And that doesn't make any sense because they're just about to answer him. They're going to answer him. That's, that's, that, that, that is not an accurate translation. The King James got it right and, and has it this way. We're not careful to answer you in this matter. Now, that's, that's beautiful. That, that is, that is uh, so significant to my life is that they'd already made this decision. They didn't have, need to have a group meeting. They really didn't need, need for Nebuchadnezzar to rehearse the matter and go over it again. Yeah, I got it. I, I understand what you're saying. That's not the problem. The problem is that we've already made our minds up. We're not careful about this. We don't have to talk it over. The answer is no. It's a, and it's a solid no. We're not going to bow down to your God no matter what. The point that I want to make, the observation is that that is, that is a, an act that is based on the fact that they already had made the decision. If we wait until we're into a temptation to make the decision about what we will do about that sin, we're tremendously more apt to commit that sin. Is that a true statement? I want you to save yourself for marriage. You must save yourself for marriage. And the time to make that decision is not when you're dating. It's not when you're already with somebody and you're crazy about them and you wait till then and you're really apt to do the wrong thing. I'll tell you, the best place to, are you ready for this? The best place to make that decision is in this room right now. If you haven't, this is a great place to make decisions about sin. And it's because we're thinking about spiritual things. We're talking about life. We're talking about pleasing God. We're talking about going to heaven instead of going to hell. We're, we're talking about being successful as Christians and following what we know to be true. It, it's, it's when you lift your head in this room and we've been praying to God. And I think that's a terrific time to make a decision like this. The time is, is not when you cross the bridge. You've got to make this decision before you get to the bridge. The decision about sin is best made prior to the temptation. They said, we're not careful to answer you about this. Why not? Don't we need to, don't we need to talk about this some more? I mean, this is going to be moral. This is life and death. And the answer is, we don't, we don't need that. We got this. We already, we already know what we're going to do. We're not careful to answer you about this. Psalm 57 and verse 7 is in the King James, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. That's it. That is exactly what we're talking about. All right, let's do, do number, number four. This is dropping down to verse 17. And it's this. I, I must never lose my faith in God's reality or his power or his love. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar re-offers this. I don't know why he didn't just kill him immediately or try to kill him then, but he gives them that maybe there's a confusion here. And so, and I suppose he appreciates the fact that he's put a lot into them so that they can serve in Babylon. And maybe, maybe that's it. They're skilled. They're wonderful. They've got all of these things. They've even got their own God and he seems to bless them. I'd kind of like to keep them around. And maybe that's the reason they gave, gave him the second chance. Okay, look, just to be clear, when the music plays, you have to bow down. They said, we're not careful to answer you about this. Verse 17 now. If that's the case, if you want to put us in that fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. 
in your life, you must remember, we must remember every day that God is all powerful and God can do anything he wants to do. Anything he wants to do. And that's what, that's what they say here. He is able to deliver us. John 16 and verse 33, and Jesus said, I want you to be of good cheer. Next slide. I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. And for, in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I've suffered, I've suffered for this cause, but I can tell you this, I know whom, whom I have believed, and I'm, I'm convinced, I'm confident that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know him. Now, this needs to be in the heart of every man and woman and child in this room. I must never lose my faith in God's reality or his power or his love. Now, here's number five. Dropping down now to verse 18. He's able, verse 17 says, he'll deliver us from your hand. But if not, now we can't, but if not, let, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. And I, I just don't know how to preach this chapter without making this point that the prayer, you, you could look at that. I mean, they just said that God is able to preserve us out of your fiery furnace. God is able. God is able. And then they said, but if not, if he doesn't choose that, then we're still not going to bow down. And you could look at that and you could say, well, it seems to me like that their faith is waning. Isn't that a lack of faith to say, but if not? Shouldn't you say God's going to do it no matter what? No, 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 no. Because God is the one who decides when he will intervene in our lives. Many, many times I pray, Father, I, I need you to intervene. I beg you to intervene. But we've got to have a but if not clause in our prayers. Because God is no puppet. And, and just, I mean, you, you bear in mind that God's view is not like man's view. God's view is utterly panoramic. That God sees the future as well as he sees the past. And God sees people and nations and all sorts of the broadness of his, of his viewpoint is so beyond me. When you get to Acts chapter 12, you read about Herod Agrippa and he imprisons Peter and James. But Agrippa is allowed by God to kill James with a sword. People loved it. They applauded the decision. And he was going to kill Peter too, the same way. Thought that would be a good idea. But, but God sends angel to come and deliver Peter out of that, that prison, out of Agrippa's prison. Now, how do you reason through that? I mean, you got two faithful Christians, James and Peter, both great, great brothers, our brothers. And one of them he delivers, and one of them he doesn't. And the answer is that, that God decides when to intervene. And, and I've got to be satisfied with that. I don't begrudge that. And, and when we pray, we must have a but if not clause. And then we need to follow it up with this when we pray. Father, thy will be done. No matter what. No matter what it means to me. In my life, or how long I live, or how long I, whatever, how, how I enjoy life, none of that really matters, because I'm in your hands. And whatever is best, that you know that, I don't. So whatever I'm praying for has this clause, thy will be done. 
I'm praying that if, if what I'm asking for is not the best thing, I do not know it. You know it. Thy will be done. Number six. Verse 24, 25. God, God, uh, God doesn't often save us from the fire, but through it. In 20, 26, it says, Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. The satraps and administrators and governors and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. The smell of fire was not upon them. Stop and think about this. It, it must have been horrific to be told, I'm going to put you in a fiery furnace and I hereby condemn you to death and let's do it now. How, how do you uh, react to that? Our Lord in the garden prayed three times. Take this away from me. You suppose Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed things like that? But the answer is that, that it's not uncommon for God to take to not keep people his people out of that fire, but to see them through that fire. Hebrews chapter eleven will help you with this. Did God love Abraham? We say, Well, of course he did. Abraham was his servant. Of course he loved Abraham. Yeah, but that didn't that didn't keep God from putting Abraham to the test on Mount Moriah with Isaac. Did God love John the Baptist? You say, Yes, of course he did. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Of course he loved him. Right. But God, God also allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded. God loved the Apostle Paul. Of course he loved him. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Yeah, but read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you see the kinds of things that he allowed Paul to go through. The point that I want to make here is that, is that God doesn't always keep his people out of the fire. You going through some fire right now? You going through some fire? Don't you be questioning God. Don't you be saying, if God really loved me, he, wouldn't, he would not let me go through this. Stop that. Biblically, that, that's never been the case. God chooses when he intervenes. He chooses that. And we're not in control of that, but what we do is trust him because he knows better than we do. And what I'm saying is he in this passage, didn't, didn't save them from the fire. He saved them through the fire. And that brings us right now to, let's, let's do chapter uh, 3 and verse 24. This is the final one. You're going through the fire right now? When I'm, when I'm in the fire, there will always be another one with me. Did we not cast three men, verse 24, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose. See, they're loose because the fire has burned the ropes off. Walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, of course, is... I mean, how could it not be? Hebrews 13 and verse 5. I will never leave you 
nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Here's Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God or children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. All right, let's wrap this up. There's one more thing I want to say. Nebuchadnezzar then praises God. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Well, he got it. He figured that out. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks against anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap. He's a violent sort of fellow. Because there's no other god who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the God. This is the, this is the God. This is God. Listen. When you face the hard days of life, when you face the pressures to compromise your faith and your, your Christian values, and you will, and, and when it looks pretty dark, I want you to think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what would have happened? What if they had yielded to this? And what if they had just said, okie doke, we'll, we'll bow down to this idol. We will do that. Well, I can tell you, they would have failed what is apparently the greatest test in their lives. So far as the record is concerned, I know of none, no greater test they'll ever face. I don't suppose they knew or thought about that really then, that this is the great one, this is the big one, but historic, historically, that's what we've got. This is the big one. Who's to say that the difficulty you're going through right now isn't ultimately going to be the biggest one you ever face? The very idea that they would have failed this is very hard to think about. I'll tell you something else, too. Had they gone ahead and yielded to this, we, we wouldn't be here these thousands of years later in this morning worship talking about them and admiring the decisions that they made and the way they stood up for what was right. And what we're about to do, now just get a grip of this. What, what we're about to do this week is to teach Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to little children. That's what we're going to do. And you know why? Of course you do. It's because they're going to grow up into adults probably. And when they do, they're going to face those compromised pressures. I want them to be able to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when you and I face these kinds of hardships, the people around us are going to watch and see, are we different from them? Are we? Or is, it, is that the time when we trust him? Is that the time when, we, when we're like these young men? God is able to do anything he wants to help me. And sometimes he's going to intervene and sometimes he won't. But I'll tell you this. I will never forsake him. I never will. He's my God. He is my father. He's my rock. He's my shepherd. And I'll never turn my back on him, come what may. Thy will be done. Anybody can serve God in the sunshine. 
Can we serve him? Can we serve him in the clouds? Can we serve him in the rain? Can we serve him in the thunder? I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Are you serving God with your life? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you turned your life over to Jesus Christ, to his service? It's a wonderful thing to think about that I can join the ranks of those through history who have served God. I, I can be that person. I can, I can join that and be part of that. Have you repented of your sins and confessed the name of Jesus, that you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Then today, what if, what if you were baptized? What, what if you were immersed? The Bible says that that's the point at which we enter Christ. That's we make access to his blood. That's the point, that's the point when he adds us to his body. We're his disciple. You can obey the gospel. If there's someone here today who already has done that, but you need prayers for strength, for forgiveness, you need help, we'd be so happy to use our voices before God to pray for you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.